This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network Podcast. My name is Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns, hostess with the mostess of the language and media and communications channels. I am very excited today to welcome Mary Pylon, who is the author of The Monopolists, Obsession, Fury, and the Scandal Behind the World's Favorite Board Game from Bloomsbury Press. Uh, the Monopolist is a sort of like a multi-layer, multi-generational, multi-character, unknown story of how Monopoly came into existence, how it's been reinvented uh, in its history, not only by Parker Brothers and media outlets, but also the, or- the lost female originator of the game and uh, a professor who spent their life trying to tell everyone about the true stories of the origins, which has failed. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the book. Um, So most people think Monopoly was invented by an unemployed Pennsylvanian who sold his game to the Parker Brothers during the Great Depression in 1935 and then lived happily and richly ever after. But as Mary tells us, that story is not exactly true. Ralph Anspach, who is a professor uh, who was fighting to sell his anti-Monopoly board game decades later, unearthed the real story, which traces back to Abraham Lincoln, the Quakers, and a forgotten feminist named Lizzie McGee, who invented her nearly identical landlord's game more than 30 years before Parker Brothers sold their version of Monopoly. Now, Lizzie's game was underpinned by morals that were the exact opposite of what Monopoly represents today, and it had been embraced by a constellation of left-wingers from the progressive era through the Great Depression, including members of Franklin Roosevelt's famed Brain Trust. It's a gripping story about corporate greed. It illuminates the cutthroat nature of American business over the last century. And uh, it's an excellent read. It reads like a detective fiction told through real life winners and losers with different pictures of the game. And I'm really just excited to have Mary here to talk about a book that came out a couple years ago, but seems to keep rejuvenating itself just because of the lifelong interest in the board game. And then also all the things happening with anti-corporate trust, or actually more like pro-corporate trust. So Mary, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Tell us about yourself and uh, how did you come to write the book and what's been happening with it the last couple of years since it went into press? Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so I, uh, I'm i a journalist, an author, screenwriter, um, kind of in that order. I write mostly about the worlds of sports and business. Uh, and The Monopolist came about back in 2009. I was on staff at the Wall Street Journal covering what I thought was the great recession of our lifetimes. Turns <laughs> out I was wrong. Um, we, we, had it, we were in for another doozy. But in 2009, a lot of us were looking back at the Great Depression in the 1930s. Um, it was pretty common to be making comparisons and thinking about, you know, culturally, financially, uh, what did that look like compared to now? So I was in an article, I honestly don't even remember what my original idea was, but I was going to mention in passing Monopoly was invented during the Great Depression. That was the story that was tucked into my family's game board. We played every Christmas. Uh, I grew up in Oregon, so there were a lot of rainy days. We had a lot of time for for board games. Uh, And I I always loved the game. And I felt like an idiot because I was looking around and things weren't adding up. And the journal, you know, bless them, is a place that every sentence has to be bulletproof. You have to be able to say to your editor exactly where you got everything. It was an amazing place to kind of bloom as a, a reporter and, and learn the craft for that reason. So I felt like an idiot because here we were writing about derivatives and securitization and these complex financial financial instruments, and I couldn't get a sentence about a board game right. And it was driving me crazy. So I did, uh, I, I employed a reporting trick that a lot of people use, which is if you don't know something, 
you try and reach out to counterparties in litigation. If you're being sued by someone or you are suing them, you might know something. Uh, and I was just at my wit's end. So it was through that line of thinking that I came across Ralph Onsbach's lawsuit. Uh, he made a game called Anti-Monopoly. And the details at that point were unclear, but I was like, God, this case looks like it went on forever, but it wrapped up in the early 80s. And so here I was in 2009, like, I don't even know. I mean, you never know. It's always a shot in the dark when you reach out. But particularly this, you know, just felt like this is so not going to work. But nonetheless, I sent him an email through his website and I said, hey, I know this sounds crazy. My name is Mary. I'm a reporter at The Journal. I'm just trying to find out what the deal is with Monopoly. And he immediately got back to me. And he said, oh, I've waited years for someone to ask me this. It's going to buy a woman. And it was played extensively for 30 plus years. And I spent 10 years litigating this. And it went to the Supreme Court and just that hatched open the whole story. And Ralph, you know, for that original Wall Street Journal story, and then later for the book, pointed me to all these documents, all of this evidence. But then as I kept reporting, it became clear that he was the reason uh, for the story, like that we wouldn't know about any of this had he not had his own kind of crazy monopoly story 40 years after. So that became the article, which became the book proposal, which became the book. Um, And then five some odd years later, when the book came out, I was able, I mean, for a long time, everybody thought I was like this crazy board game conspiracy theorist. I mean, you go around New York City and people are like, what are you working on? You're like, I'm working on a book about a board game. And everyone's like, that's so crazy. Like, what? What's wrong with you? And now at least I feel like hand people like the, the thing I was working on and say, no, it's actually really, it's a crazy story here. Read all about it. Yeah. It's, and it's a great book. I mean, I, I will say for being like a a supposed like scholar academic, I read pretty lowbrow (laughs) stuff, like (laughs) self published fantasy on Amazon. And sometimes I shy away from historic, what I, what I think most people call like historical fiction or historical nonfiction, which is just telling this story of of the truth over years and years and years. Because this is a long time span. I mean, this book spans like almost two centuries. But this reads, it does read like a detective story and it's got multiple characters and they crisscross. And I was thinking it would actually make a really good like BBC miniseries where you do each Mm -hmm. person's like timeline. So do you want to give us a layout of the major players, pun intended, and then how each one of them came at this from a different angle to converge into what we now know as the Monopoly game? And then maybe just highlight some of your favorite anecdotes or surprising things that you discovered along the way, because it's a lot of book that everyone really needs to go read. But I think you can give us like the big flavors of the the piece. Uh, I had this moment of terror that I think a lot of authors do where I sold the proposal and I was so excited and I was like, wait a minute, I don't know how to write a book. (laughs) At that point, I'd only written, I think the longest thing I'd written was an article. It was like maybe 2000 words. So this was your first book. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I was friends. That's crazy. (laughs) But I love, you know, it's funny you mentioned like beach reads. I'm an impassioned defender of beach reads. Actually. I think that like, as long as people are reading and I, I love reading as an escape and I just, I'm all for, uh, you know, expanding our palette. That said, I also believe you should write what you want to read or what you do read. And I love narrative nonfiction. Um, for this mm. book, I was really inspired by the Eric Larson's of the world. I think I've read everything he's done. Uh, and he ended up blurbing the book, which was like, felt like a dream come true. Uh, everyone has their rock stars. And I was like, Eric Larson's blurbing my book. Oh my God. I love the work of Gay Talese. I love um, The Billionaire's Vinegar um, is a book I looked at, which is uh, traces the history of the most expensive uh, bottle of wine. And mm. I similarly was, you know, when you're doing day-to-day journalism, your characters are there, you know, they're there. You pick up the phone and you, you kind of, you know, most news articles are pretty, clearly structured. I actually take comfort in that in that formula. With a book, it's a whole different ballgame because your characters, you have to spend so much time with them as, as a reader too. So with these characters, I knew like Ralph, you know, bless him again, was so generous in terms of giving me time to spend with him and documents. And so over time, I got to know who Ralph was. I felt like I started to know the guy. I interviewed his sons um, and, and his wife who has since passed. And so I knew the Onspock family over time. And I felt like that was very similar to the work of journalism I was doing. Um, however, Lizzie McGee, you know, I guess I'll just talk about the characters in chronological order. The first, uh, the first pass of the book, I realized I had to go back and rewrite it because I was so obsessed with trying to stitch together the dates and the places and the facts that I realized I didn't actually know who this woman was. I didn't have hmm. a sense of who 
was as a person. I didn't know what it meant to be a woman doing this stuff in that time period. I'm not a scholar of feminist history. So um, I had to go back and really shape things out a bit more. Um, And she's really the pulse of the book. Lizzie McGee was this pretty incredible woman. She was the daughter of this man named James McGee, who was one of the early uh, founders of the Republican Party. He had traveled with Abraham Lincoln during the Lincoln-Douglas debates. He was a very influential newspaper owner, and he really infuses a lot of his political and economic values in his daughter. Uh, Lizzie McGee was this impassioned um, suffragette. She um, did some pretty audacious things in terms of advocating for women's rights. She placed an ad in a newspaper uh, selling herself as a slave as a way to make a commentary about equal pay. She was involved in the theater. She wrote books of poetry, and she was a game designer. And she used games to te- as a teaching tool, uh, which is really fascinating to me because now there's this really wonderful movement in education of bringing game design principles into engaging kids and learning. But the idea of a century ago doing that, you know, it's one thing to read about single tax theory, which, you know, just even saying that makes my eyes glaze over. And I love reporting on taxes. Um, but for most people, it's it's a it's a barrier. So the idea of her creating this game, the landlord's game, to teach and get her ideas across is pretty revolutionary. So she's the main character. She We wouldn't have Monopoly if not for her. And then you have Ralph Onspach. So Ralph, um, what I love about this story is you have two people who never meet and their fates are completely hinged on each other. Lizzie's mm. story wouldn't have come out if not for Ralph Onspach's work. But Ralph needed to prove Lizzie McGee's story to help defend his lawsuit and his case that he had a right to make his anti-monopoly game. So Ralph was this professor uh, in the Bay Area in the early 1970s, married, two sons, and he was trying to create a game that could teach his students and his kids a kind of more morally righteous, more righteous version of monopoly. And when you think about where the country was in the early 1970s, uh, there was a lot of cynicism. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, the OPEC oil cartels, for example, were you know making headlines every other day. Um, and so he goes out to create this more philosophically pleasing version of Monopoly, which when you think about Monopoly, you know, it's a pretty dark game in some ways. Yeah. because It teaches kids, you know, that you have to clobber each other and only one person can win. And personally, I believe the pie of success is large and a lot of people can have slices. So he creates this game and it's not long before he gets a cease and desist letter from Parker Brothers saying that he can't make his game. And he thinks, wait, how can they have a monopoly on monopoly? And that kicks off this 10 year long legal battle and his detective story to find out the truth about the game. Um, so he's really, you know, kind of main character too. And then I guess the other big character um, is Charles Darrow, who is the man who had sold a version of the game to Parker Brothers in the 1930s and was really held up as this Horatio Alger story, this brilliant inventor, um, when the game, by all evidence, had been around for 30 some odd years. Um, And then I guess the other characters that I was really interested in were the Parker brothers. Here's this family-run company that hits the Great Depression, and they need a hit, and they need it fast. And they start manufacturing Monopoly sets in the 1930s, and the game sells in a way that no game had really sold before it. And that's so counterintuitive in some ways, because it's the Great Depression, people are not spending a lot of money, and it's a game about swapping money and real estate. Although I argue in the book that I think that's precisely why the game was a huge hit. Yeah, you say it's like a a fantasy structure coping mechanism, essentially, right? Definitely. And I think that's true for games today, too. And I think that's a great thing. You know, I love theater. I love movies. I love, like, I'm all, you know, to the point of beach reads. I think escapism is, is great. And I think there's something really magical and wonderful about that. And it's interesting, uh, when I was on the book tour, I heard a lot from parents who would say, oh, I'm using Monopoly to teach my kids about money because they don't know how cash works. Uh, so it's amazing how it's kind of come full, full circle. Yeah, it's also interesting how the characters sort of mirror different ideologies, so to speak. So Lizzie, So the story of Lizzie is very much about ethics and teaching and resistance and just like the long process of creating something that ultimately doesn't necessarily go anywhere. And it's not a surprise to me that the narrative we've latched on is this rags to riches overnight success, uh, uh, like Darrow, right? It's like, it's not surprising to me that that's the one that serves the ideological interest. Because even though I love Lizzie's story, I, I can see why it's not the one that was sellable, right? 
So it's cool to see these all playing and intersecting each other, crisscrossing. And so the book's a great read. I mean, it does read very much like a detective story. Oh, thank you. I I love detective stories. And I read a lot of French. But it was together. I'm an Agatha Christie, diehard Agatha Christie fan. So yes, absolutely. So but that's also what the true story was, you know, with Ralph in the 70s, he was traveling around the country trying to find these original players to give depositions and their boards and evidence to to get the story right. So for me coming along in 2009, 10, 11, uh, it was like another generation had passed. And so those depositions were absolutely critical for me and recreating the story. Uh, so he was a, a monopoly detective and that that is also just what, what happened. So I, I kind of structured it that way after spending all this time with Ralph. And one of the things with Lizzie that, you know, I had this question too that you're bringing up of like, why did the Darrow story uh, cling? And I think part of it, even though it's not true and there was so much evidence flying in the face of it, um, I think it's because it's a really compelling story. Like we love the idea in business, but also just in America of more generally of I'm going to go into my basement and I'm going to have a eureka moment and I'm going to innovate and boom, I'm going to become a millionaire. But I think most people would tell you that that's not how it works <laughs> often is things are a slog and it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of trial and error. And I'm in the camp of thank goodness because I wasn't born a genius. I don't have a lot, like, I like the idea of, you know, the, the incremental approach to innovation and that it doesn't have to be perfect and we don't have to sit around and wait for lightning bolts. Um, and the truth about innovation is it's really messy. And part of the reason why Monopoly is so good is that people tinkered with it for 20 or 30 years. Um, mm. What I couldn't have predicted is that there is a Horatio Alger, but it's Lizzie McGee and that she created this game. And when you go back to these depositions and how she was talked about and covered um, in the 1930s when this was, you know, Parker Brothers is selling the game, Darrow is propped up as the inventor and she lashes out in the press. And she's now as an older woman living in Washington, D.C. and She's holding up her boards and she has two patents and fewer than one percent of patents went to women at the time. So it's incredible to me. Wow to a patent office in 1904. She renewed it in 1924 and she used her initials, interestingly. So uh, you really have to know what you're looking for, but it's, there it is, you know, E.M. McGee. And she, she lashes out. And at the time, you know, there's a deposition from Robert Barton, who is um, at the time, one of the heads of Parker Brothers. And he kind of casts her as this like political wing nut, you know, that she's just kind of eccentric and she's kind of loopy. She's so, you know, she's kind of out there. And by then, you know, Henry George, who was really her political like, guru, he had long since died, although he was hugely popular when he was alive. You know, she gets kind of cast aside. And one of the things I couldn't have predicted is I published, you know, this book came out in early 2015 and it found this really wonderful audience with women in tech. And then it got this whole other uh, boost with the Me Too movement, um, you know, that, mm. that used to me has become this example of all these other women who literally get written out of history, who make these huge contributions. I mean, obviously when I was working on this, I had no idea that our culture would shift so much on this. My goal was just to tell the story and to get it right. And so it's interesting that now, you know, a couple of years ago, Hasbro released a Ms. Monopoly game. And at first I was so excited because I thought, oh my gosh, this is the moment. Like after a century, Lizzie McGee is going to get acknowledged. And I was crestfallen to find out that that wasn't the case. But what was amazing mm. to me is the internet corrected the story um, that people, mm. as the, the book had been out for so long and picked up by so many news outlets that Lizzie had all these advocates where immediately people were saying to Hasbro on Twitter, on social media, and all of the coverage it got in the Washington Post, New York Times, et cetera, like my phone was blowing up because people said, how could they do this? Lizzie McGee invented it. And I thought it was amazing that anybody noticed or cared and so that the record was being reset. Um, and I, I couldn't have foreseen Lizzie McGee really getting traction as this kind of feminist anti-hero, which is, you know, you, it's it's better late than never, right? She died in 1948, but <laughs> is getting the credit now in 2021. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, um, it's sad and heartwarming at the same time. I, I didn't know that there'd been this ups. I did kind of wonder, it was one of the questions I was going to ask you, like, so once you brought attention to this, did Lizzie McGee, and apparently she got her moment, good old social media. She did get her moment and um, she did and she didn't, right? Because- Right, yeah, when, exactly. Yeah, and I, I love, so this is like a, a storytelling choice that 
you know, and I'm saying this sitting in Los Angeles, right? So here, obviously, people love Hollywood endings. People love the, you know, it's all tied up in a bow. And there's, a, you know, that's a formula for a reason that it's very satisfying. It's like finishing a great meal when you finish a book or a movie that ends that way. I'm very different in that I like a gray. I like ending on a note that's complicated. I like leaning into that. I like ambiguity. Um, I like reading it. I like, you know, leaning into that if that's what my reporting is yielding out. And so Lucy McGee, when she dies in 1948, um, is not credited as the inventor at all. If you look at her obituary, it's like very hard to find. It's like a few little tiny lines. And she, the best we can tell, made $500 from inventing Monopoly. Um, and one of the last traces of her that I was able to find is the 1940 U.S. Census, which had gotten digitized by the time I was reporting this. And it's really interesting because it shows she wore so many hats. You know, she had worked as a receptionist. She had been a teacher. She had been an actress. And her when they ask you to list your occupation, she wrote Game Maker, which I thought was fascinating because that was the thing that she was clinging to as her identity, as what she really saw her her job being, and her income is zero. So, you know, at the time, uh, this was just right after the real first spike in Monopoly sales. And so here she is holding on to this. And years later in Ralph's lawsuit, he started getting letters from people as his lawsuit was getting press who said, I worked with this woman. She was like the secretary at the Department of Ed, or she also worked at the, um, the post office at one point. And she said she invented Monopoly and we all thought she was crazy. And Ralph was like, oh my God, you know, she, she was, she was, that's what the, the facts bear out. So in her lifetime, I think it is a sad ending, but I think mm. you know, th- there's kind of this weird relationship you have when you write history that, um, and this is going to sound strange, but I don't think when people are dead, they're gone. You know, when people mm. are dead, that doesn't mean they stop. They weren't ever on this planet. They weren't ever human beings. They weren't ever, you know, that they're really actually gone. And I don't mean that in a totally insane, you know, religious metaphysical sense. I mean, like she made a thing that we're still using today. And I love the idea of like kind of the red violin or that these objects pass through time and pass through hands and that it's all kind of a build. And, you know, I think one of the reasons some of the feedback I got from why Lizzie McGee's story has really taken off with women and game design in particular is because like, I think North stars are really important. I think it's really important to know that you're part of a lineage that, you know, and I say this as a woman who writes about sports. Like I love when I find out about women who were doing sports journalism before, because they, if not for them, I couldn't do what I do, um, whether I know their name or not. So I, I really enjoy that. And I really enjoyed that about researching this book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah. So that actually leads us to a really good question, which is, so there are these characters, but the board game itself is also a character. So you include different designs. It was circular at one point. Um, you also talk about how people would play it in their homes. And so especially toward the like end of the 1800s, uh, early 1900s, before Parker Brothers got their sort of like copyright on it, it would evolve and be kind of like a word of mouth kind of thing. And in fact, I think you even mentioned that there was a, a neighbor or someone who had played it and were like mad when Darrow copyrighted it because it kind because they had taught him the game. So um, could you talk about sort of some of the themes of the board game's evolution and some of the differences and similarities you see in its different itera- iterations compared to maybe what people see now, like were something's always there, even with Lizzie's version or was there, was she like on the opposite side of a, of a, of an arrangement versus what we might play now and, so can you like yeah. lay some of that out for us? Sure. Um, the early evolution of Monopoly is is fascinating. And it's it's neat, too, because it's a very visual story. So if you look mm-hmm. at the 1904 patent, um, which is public and available, you see the core of our Monopoly board today. Um, but it's 1904. So instead of free parking, because cars weren't really as big of a deal, you have free park. And she's really interested in land use, right? So that makes sense. Um, She's also very concerned about the robber barons, uh, the railroad robber barons. So you see the railroads, which we also have on our Monopoly board today. Excuse me. Um, So she creates this game 
And as it spreads throughout the Northeast, it's a folk game. So people modify the game and make it their own and they localize it. So if you're playing in New York, you're going to have Broadway on there. Um, If you're playing in Chicago, you're going to have the loop. If you're in Boston, you might have the commons. And I think that's one of the coolest things about looking at these early games is that they are so homegrown and that people really made it their own. Uh, And one of the groups that, and so I should back up, she, when she invents her game, she has two rule sets. She has a monopolist rule set, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's all about taking control of the board. And she has an anti-monopolist rule set, which is, you know, she's trying to teach people the evils of monopolies. Um, it's the monopolist rule set that takes off uh, by all mm. accounts, which is fascinating to me too, as a window into human nature that when given the option of being good or evil, we all chose to like do, do the, the more vicious one. So one of the groups that really latches onto the game are uh, the Quakers in Atlantic City. Atlantic City, uh, I had so much fun. I was living in New York at the time and I would spend a lot of time looking at the archives there. Atlantic City is this really incredible place in American history at this point. And Bryant Simon has written and researched a lot on this. I think his work is so excellent, uh, you know, because it, it, it reflects New York City and Philadelphia at the time, which is to say there it's a it's a total mix of immigrants of, um, you know, it's the birth of the hotel industry. There's there's a lot going on there. So the Quakers uh, at the time, it's funny because we think of Monopoly as being this like very milk toast, wholesome you know, it's a board game, right? Um, but anything with a dice was considered. Oh, okay. My cat just did a full on, <laughs> full on Superman dive into the computer. No worries. Um, he's like three hundred pounds. Go ahead. He clearly they have decided that today is oh, their day and not my day. <laughs> they thought anything with a dice was considered to be evil. So they thought Monopoly was really scandalous. So they would have these Monopoly nights and they put Atlantic City properties onto the board, just like everybody was doing. You made it look like your neighborhood. Then um, a lot of the early Atlantic City Quaker players were also teachers. So they, you know, added some features to make it a little bit simpler so that they could play it with kids. Um, so one of the, the early players of the Atlantic City game, so by now we're in the late 1920s, early 1930s, is a man named Charles Todd. Uh, And he plays the game and teaches it to Charles Darrow. They had a Monopoly night, just as was the fashion. Um, And it's a version of that game that Darrow sells to Parker Brothers. And then years later, when Ralph was going through his lawsuit, he tracks down Charles Todd and his wife, Olive, who were there for the Monopoly night. And they give a deposition and they say, this is exactly what happened. And it actually ruined their friendship that the Darrows and the Todds never really spoke after. So um, that was a big linchpin in his case. And, uh, you know, for me, when I was thinking about the timeline of the game and kind of this question of like what happened, Charles Todd's a big, is a big part of that. Do you, um, do you think that the, do you think like, so what's your opinion of Darrow? Cause you sort of like, you're clearly a fan of Lizzie. And Daryl, you sort of slow roll a little bit. Like you present the facts and the arguments and stuff, but I can't really tell if you think he's a scumbag or an opportunist or like, who is he? What character is he for you? Again, I, I lean into the gray. Um, Ralph, <laughs> I don't know if you this in the book or not, but Ralph once used the phrase benevolent con man. Oh, which that's great. Really interesting. So, you know, ta- Daryl, like, look, this is the Great Depression, right? And, right. and Daryl, yeah. like, you know, he wins the lottery effectively and he has a family he's supporting and he has a son who um, is dealing with some disabilities and things, which at that time would have been absolutely horrible in terms of what your options for, you know, schooling and, and education and things would have been like. So this really big part of me was really like, you know, there's a lot to be empathetic with there. And I, I think it's dangerous to just cast someone as a villain right off the bat. Yeah, for sure. It's a little more complicated. And you know, there's also this question, and then this is what's so frustrating about writing about the deceased is like, what did he know? And how much of it did he know? I don't know, you know, like, there's a lot of like, there's, we we just don't know. So that's why I'm a little reluctant to, um, you know, to cast cast him as anything in particular. Uh, I think the other big part of the story, and I think that the Darrow opinion kind of falls into this for me is that we have to remember, nobody knew they were sitting on Monopoly. You know, we're sitting here talking about game forever after but no one i mean a hit in the board game industry was so unusual but the idea of one that you would 
create, you know, like that you would play generation after generation after generation that was commercially sold. I mean, obviously we have checkers and chess and Parcheesi and these other games, but th- th- this was insane. Nobody knew that it was <laughs> be as gangbusters of a seller either. So that also raises questions too, is like, yeah, we're sitting here saying like, how could he have taken credit for a game that, you know, was making millions? And I don't think he knew that at the time. Who could have? I don't know if Barden or Parker Brothers knew that this game was going to become such an icon. So I don't know. I, I think he's, he's a tricky, he's a tricky character, but I don't get the sense that he was, you know, I went back and read all of the press and stuff that he did at the time. And it's not like he's like screaming at Lizzie McGee as being this horrible person or anything. She's not addressed, right? She's just not. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, at one point, Ralph finds these letters that I include in the book where Barton, the CEO of Parker Brothers, asks Darrow, you know, hey, we have a chance. Can you write up a history of the game? Because people are asking questions. And he dodges the question. And he kind of writes back this fumbling, like, you know, oh, I don't really remember. And, um, and I think that that's kind of indicative of how he felt about it, that this was, this was keeping his family afloat. And I thought that was really interesting, too, in, you know, researching him, that um, I think that's a very primal thing that is really understandable. And in a way, in a funny way, that's what Ralph was trying to do. Ralph was trying to make his game and teach his kids a lesson about right and wrong. So in a funny way, I think that there's some t- like, it's always interesting to, you, you want to look at what conflicts exist when you're writing a story, but there's also a lot to be said for looking at what people have in common. And I think that that's something that, you know, the, the theme of fatherhood, I thought was really interesting in this story too. Yeah, and I think what's cool about Darrow, because I'm a rhetorician, right? So I always read people as as symbols kind of thing. And so it's less about whether Darrow's the good guy or the bad guy. Is like Darrow as a character really gives the lie to the myth of of like capitalist success. Because he really did just stumble on a lot of work that had been done by other people over many like disparate people and centuries and games, right? He just happened to be in the right place at the right time to bring those together and then stumbled into the right period. And also, you know, probably being a white man pitching the board game helped. And so it isn't that he's not deserving of his success. It's that he is just the tip of a success iceberg. And so when we look at these people like the Darrow's and the Elon Musk's and the the Steve Jobs, I mean, they help shore up like an a like kind of like a support for monopoly now because I mean you're seeing like these trusts and monopolies happening all over the place. And that's why Daryl's cool is because his success with the game is precisely how people imagine that stuff to work. And yet when you dig into the details, it isn't how it works. It's not that he's a bad or good. He just is the the mythological figure of like he 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 just came up with it one day and then he was the right person to market. And then when you look at the details, you're like, nope. Really just right place, right time. Absolutely. With a little bit with a little bit of like he just put the English on it as the as the billiards players say. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, zooming out, you have to think about not just these people and the story, but the systems in which they're operating. Right. Yeah. Um, and the same way I had to go back and think about Lizzie McGee, like what was the system she was operating in? Okay, the head of the US Patent Office says publicly, women don't even bother applying. We're not gonna approve you. Um, but the system in which Darrow was operating, you know, to your point was the domain of, you know, wealthy, rich white men. Like, so, yeah. I, you know, that's, um, it, I, we could have a whole separate conversation about cancel culture and rewriting history. And, you know, that that's all fine and good. I think that that's also part of the story too, that, um, you know, and I was looking at this with very different eyes, but I think that part of the reason, and I read about this in the book, but like, Part of the reason I wanted to tell this story is I think history is full of Lizzie McGee's. I think it's yeah. full of women. And I mean, the long list of categories of people who literally get written out of the story, but are hustling, you know, <laughs> they do a lot of work. And, and I think that that's, that's the story of this country. That's the story of how things have been built. And it's not that there aren't women doing incredible things. It's that we just haven't told their stories or their, their story, you know, or, or certain groups have only told their stories. And the funny thing about the Me Too movement to me is among my female friends, um, there was this whole thread of conversation that I think a lot of people had, which is like, where's everyone been? You know, <laughs> like this is news to people that like, you know, that, that women are, are struggling and that there is these, you know, we're ignored, we're talked over, we're mansplained. Like, it, you know, people, women have been talking about this for a long time. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, things kind of pop through 
in these moments. Um, and, you know, with the pandemic in particular, I'm really curious what this next wave of feminism is going to look like because uh, the jobs numbers have really, really grossly, like horribly impacted women. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, childcare duties and caregiving, how that's fallen on women. And, um, you know, I think about Lizzie McGee in, too, in that sense, too, that she there's this optimism in what she did. And I think that creating something is an act of, uh, it can be an act of rebellion, but it also can be a way of asserting yourself. And the fact that I'm blown away that I even had enough documentation to tell her story, given hurdles and the barriers that, that she had. Um, And yet, you know, here there's Darrow who didn't have any evidence and his story ran amok for decades, um, which I think is, tells you a lot right there. Well, and you wrote a, you edited another collection, uh, which is more about like sports culture. And it's about, you call it, it's like the title of it is Losers. And I remember reading about that thinking there's some overlap here because, because you don't, there's like a couple different kinds of ways to do this, right? First, you can tell the story where Lizzie's the hero who got a, you can make like a biopic and she just got a dumb run of luck and like, but you center her. You can decenter her as just part of um, a mythology or you can tell the story that I think you told, which is like, she kind of lost, like, but, but you're not trying to turn that into some type of virtue. It isn't like, you're not like, there's not like this martyrdom that we should praise her because she lost. It's just the reality is that this is a common story for minoritized people that they do all of this work and they are the creators and, and then it just doesn't pan out for them. So I'm excited to read the edited volume too, because I like this this thread because you think about Malcolm Gladwell, he wrote this book about I forget what it's called, but it's like here are how all the losers really are the winners. But that's not what this is. It's like yes, you lost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> that's just I, yeah, what happened? So Louisa Thomas, my colleague at the New Yorker, who I, I did losers with, um, this very much came out of our conversations about this. That in our just lives, loss has played a huge role. You know, whether that's mm. a breakup, uh, a loss of a job, a, a loss of someone we loved, loss is a defining thing. And I don't think that's unique to the two of us. I think it's a universal thing. And in our travels, particularly writing about sports, and we write about this in the introduction of the book, if you go to the locker rooms of the losers, it's weird. You know, it feels yeah. and And to lose so publicly in sports, which is like kind of a, a unique experience or can be. And we were like, why, why are people so, especially in sports, so freaked out about talking about loss when on some level we all acknowledge it's something that we go through. And one of the reasons I love writing about sports is people, I always say that it's like people think they're eating ice cream, but you can give them spinach. So every single one of the pieces in the collection is about sports. There's a bullfighting piece, there's baseball pieces, there's, you know, it it's, has the mask of, uh, of sports, but it's also about psychology. It's about the different flavors mm-hmm. of loss, the different things that happen. The it's um, to me, uh, you know, it looks like a very almost funny kind of farcical light read. And it came out over the summer. So a lot of people I know read it, you know, on, on the beach, um, which is great. You know, I, I, I like that too. But there's also, um, we love every piece in this collection because there's a all, and every single one of them, like a, a darker, meatier underpinning to it too. Um, and people are I don't know when people get really uncomfortable talking about something. I think part of me is like, "Ooh, <laughs> there yeah, must be let's go there." Like, what's that yeah, about? Yeah, let's go there right now. Yeah, <laughs> yes, and, uh, and I shared that too. We were like, "Oh, let's write a book only about losers." Um, and and also, we were on a tear of you see this with sports stories. Like, editors don't like writing loser stories, and um, and anyone who's really great at sports, like we have a really fabulous piece in here uh, about LeBron James as a loser. And at first, when the idea came in, I was like, I don't know, like, how can we have a LeBron piece in a collection called Losers? Um, But Ryan O'Hanlon, who wrote that, did such a fantastic job of, you know, talking about LeBron's relationship with loss. And it's just this wonderful foil story. Um, and, And I think that that's also true, that anyone who's really successful will have at least one, if not several, loser stories and how that changed things for them. So we think they're really instructive too. So always, always here for the losers. Always. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I liked about Monopoly. And then when I saw the new edited book, I was like, oh, this is like maybe one of your things is to, (laughs) is to tell, is to tell the loser story without turning it into this, like it was the moment right before they won. It's like, no, she never wins. Right. (laughs) It's really relatable, right? Like, I mean, yeah, it really is. 
piece, like we've all been ignored. We've all been that person who has been completely steamrolled or, you know, uh, had a great idea that like, we've all had something stolen from us. Like there's every single character you're writing about. There's like a universal thing, right? With Ralph's lawsuit, we've always had fights. You've always had a, a struggle or something that you were trying to prove or put together or so I, I really try to find that in everything I, I can write. But again, losers, like we've all lost. And I was a terrible athlete as a kid too. So I really, there's no metaphor. I was like, oh, I, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> I know how that feels. <laughs> yeah. Well, and um, and I think what's what's so frustrating about this book and also makes it so fun to read is uh, like fun, like in the, in the paint, like it's fun because it hurts kind of way, is that. <laughs> Is that she cares so much, right? Lizzie just clearly for and, and this is only what little doc I mean, I can only imagine what this book would like if you had any letters or anything else you could access. I think you'd find even more depth of passion and caring. And Ralph cares so much and is trying to do something so important. And then Daryl just like dum 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 stumbles into this and kind of this milk toast evolution. And and you're just so bummed out because it's like he's clearly the least invested. He, I mean, he, but you're right. He does have a different kind of investment, which is he's motivated by the need to survive and take care of his family. So I don't mean to say he's mm-hmm. not like passionate. I just mean he doesn't, it doesn't seem like he really cares about the game. And so you do, it is this, it, it does kind of blow a hole in this myth that like, uh, I always say it's graduation speech time is coming up. So nine out of 10 speeches are going to be about don't do what, like find your passion. Yeah. And that's why I love books like this. Cause it's like, yeah, or don't, because look what happened to game the game of monopoly you know what i mean right right. oh yeah it's fascinating how i think also in silicon valley now there's this interesting like preciousness around losing and i'm like a big fan of self-pity actually i think sometimes when things are like it's worth saying this sucks yeah this this is bad and that allows you to like you know what's the expression like own name the pain own the pain be the pain release the pain or something like that like mm-hmm. i think that there's also this like oh you know i like my parents didn't give me money for my first company and it was really rough but now i'm a billionaire and you're like wait a minute like so i think that like loss you know I, and that's one of the things we don't know is what lizzie mcgee like how how she felt about this uh, we know we have some indications and whiffs of it um but there's also a view that if her goal her ultimate goal wasn't to make money, but to have people playing the game. Then mm. she was successful, right? I mean, yeah, we are sure. still talking about this. Now, where it gets tricky for me is, do if you pulled somebody off the street and said, oh, Monopoly, I don't think they would say, oh, yeah, that single tax game that teaches people about the evils of capitalism, right? So some of the message, I think, got lost in translation, but um, she people are playing her game. Like, her game is really out there and has had this life beyond what I think she could have ever imagined. So um, it's it's been fascinating for me in the years since the book has come out that I get letters on both sides of it, which to me is gratifying because it makes me feel like I maybe did a good job of <laughs> of keeping it in a gray a gray space. Because the truth is, I don't I don't know. You know, I feel like my opinion on this has has changed, too. Well, and you can't discount that, just like you said at the beginning of the interview, the need for this game to perform a certain kind of function at different times when people's lives have been very hard and not to shit on people because they needed a little bit of an escape. And I I think you do a great job of keeping that in sight throughout the book. Oh, thank you. Uh, Yes. I I mean, I say this as somebody who loves games and loves playing games too. So you know, that always puts you in a weird, weird space as a journalist, too, because you you want, you know, you want to get the facts straight and you want to be fair. Um, but you also want to try and be in people's heads and you want to try and think. And books are also such a different game than, oh, that was a terrible pun, um, than, than but, articles because you have to think about them lasting for a lot longer. And they're not always more evergreen, but I've never, I have a lot of friends and colleagues who do these really newsy, quick turnaround books. And that's great. And I like reading them. Uh, I don't know if I could totally do that because I kind of like, I like that most of the story happened at least 30 or 40 years ago. Um, so there were, even Ralph was at a different place with it by the time I was talking about it because he could kind of reflect on it differently. So as far as a memory exercise, I thought that was interesting too. And that's true for the game as well. I mean, I still play with my family. I still really enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> no, my family-, family was not allowed to play Monopoly. It, we had a very yeah. different relationship to it. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I lose, by the way. Um, and my family still argues with me about the rules. So let it be known. You can spend five or six years of your life writing a 
book about it and you're still the little sister. It's like that's oh, very oh. funny. Do you explain to them that that the original version had two versions of rules? Because I love that about um, yeah, that I, I design. Um, for the times that you can find on my website about how most people don't play by the proper rules. I mean, it's it's a tiny little beat, but I guess it's one that I I'm trying to own. Um, so it's that's like also funny too to me that you know that we all one of the things I love about games, both playing with my family and friends, is that we see different sides of people. You know, my yeah. grandmother, who is this tiny, petite, church going, sweet lady turns into an animal when you play Monopoly with her. Like she steals, like she, this was before smartphones when we play as a kid. And so you didn't get up to go to the bathroom because grandma Maxine might rip you off. Like it was a real, she was a different person. Um, and I always think that's super fun to, to see, see emerge. Well, and thinking about the book as having a, like a longer life than its immediate life, uh, what I found interesting since I read the book, which at this point has been a, cu- a couple of months, is that now when I see Monopoly show up as like a signifier in culture, I'm a lot more attentive to it. And uh, the reason I, th- I think of it right now is because uh, the, the pilot came out for this new like kind of like stupid sitcom called Home Economics on Hulu. I don't know what station it's on, Fox or whatever. I, I stream everything. I'm a millennial. And so... <laughs> So in the first episode, you meet all the characters and they're all in various forms of like economic struggle, right? That's kind of, and, and the, the older brother who's sort of a, a kind of a, like a schmooze is like filthy rich and stupid. And it's like, he's like one of those characters that is frustrating and I can't imagine is real because he's so stupid and so rich. It makes me very angry. But there's a scene in the middle of it where the kids are playing Monopoly kind of haphazardly and the, it's the cousins and they're bonding and he shows up and starts lecturing them about how to play the game to like maximize profits. And he's criticizing the one kid because he's not in diversifying and all this stuff. And I was like, you know, this is such a great scene because he's so unlikable and he's the one coming in and ruining the fun of the game with all of the like profit motives. And yet also he's reinforcing the idea that this is what we should all be. And it's a really short scene. It's only about 10, 15 seconds. There's but I had all of these thoughts about it because I had so much context from the book. So I'm excited. I'm excited to see how this pops up in my life. I love that. There's also a fabulous uh, Sopranos Monopoly scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also a great Monopoly scene in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. Oh, it'd be cool to go back and maybe this will be maybe this will be my next article is is the rhetoric of Monopoly. I can just use your book and look at Monopoly scenes. <laughs> Irony abounds. I was joking with my uh, editor that you know I, I I don't I was like there's gonna be no puns in the prose of this book. Like no one's passing go. No one like I was like I'm just gonna clean like keep it clean because like the book is so laced with irony. I don't need to hammer yes. home. No. <laughs> you know, no one, no one's going to jail. No one like, we're just going to keep the language of the game out because it's already so in people's brains that yeah. it really help for me on that, on that at all. Yeah. I appreciated that. This could have easily fell into obvious corny territory and you kept it really implicit. It's like, there was never a moment where you were hammering me over the head with the point. You just wrote it so well that I followed you the whole way. So, I mean, kudos on being an awesome writer. This was quite the read. So with that said, now that I'm ready to tell everyone where to buy the book, do you want to say anything else about main takeaways or what you're working on now? Or Sure. So I'm working on a bunch of stuff now that I don't know how much I can talk about, which sounds like I'm in the CIA or something. But <laughs> it actually just means things are moving really slowly. Um, Losers is out and is a blast and it's just been fun. I mean, there's no way that Luisa and I could have known when we sold the book that we would be launching it into a summer of no sports or a season where, you know, like losers, like 2020, what is, what a theme for the year, uh, loss, right? So it's been fun in a strange way to see that have kind of, um, you know, there was like this moment where there was like no sports content at all. And we were like, we got you covered. We got a whole collection of stuff about sports and losing, um, so working on that, and then I'm kind of continuing to report on the lack of sports, which is kind of an interesting, weird world. Um, and then the the Monopolis has also been in development as a film, so that's a thing on my plate. What? Oh, my, so not my BBC miniseries, but it would make a great film too. Correct. But as you know, it's like you start out talking about one thing, and then before you know it, you know, it's uh, – I just keep joking that I want Meryl Streep to play all the parts. I want Meryl to do one woman play with Meryl. That would actually be really fun to do the whole thing with one performer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just all Meryl. That's a good idea. Um, Like, what can't she do? Um, So, yeah. You can tell I'm not the most helpful. (laughs) Um, I'm just like, how do I become Well, and I will... 
Yeah, I know. My, my whole goal was just how to become friends with Meryl Streep. That'll be your next book. Once yeah, it book finally happens. Plan. That's actually what the subhead should be. The Monopolist. Mary Plon's long con to friend. <laughs> Yeah. And with that said, I just want to remind the listeners as we wrap up that I've been talking to Mary Pylon, who is the author of The Monopolist, Obsession, Fury, and the Scandal Behind the World's Favorite Board Game. And if you click on the show notes in the podcast or on the website, we'll link to Mary's website, that way, uh, marypylon.com. That way you can keep abreast of all of the Meryl Streep happenings and other books (laughs) on the way. And just as a reminder, this is a book published by Bloomsbury, which is one of our favorite presses. They are um, they do excellent work. Authors like Mary do a ton of research to put these in people's hands. And right now, if I'm not mistaken, this book is like eight bucks on Kindle. I believe so. so. Yeah. So just to be clear, like not raking in the dough on these books. So if you have a chance to pick up a copy, please do. But if, you know, if, if, you're, if your appetite has been sated and you've had enough, the other really nice thing you can do, I think, especially for a book like this that clearly is going to have such a long life, is to pick up a hard copy and donate it to your local library. You can certainly put in a request for them to purchase it, but budgets are tight right now. And so a really awesome thing to do, especially with the underserved public libraries, is to, to buy a copy, a hard copy, and just take a buy and donate it and let them put it on the shelves for people to enjoy because obviously uh, the game isn't going away and that means the book is going to continue to circulate and have new meaning and educate people about the way that these board games that we play have these very important ideological lives. And again, introducing people to the story of Lizzie McGee, which I was not aware of. So Mary, with that, I just want to say thanks for coming on. We're excited about everything that you're planning on doing. Um, Anything else you want to say to the listeners before we say goodbye? No, thanks so much for having me. And just to add to that, um, you're absolutely right. Shout out to Bloomsbury. They were awesome to work Mm -hmm. with. Um, shout out to bookshop.org, which is how I've been buying um, pretty much all my books now. It's help support uh, help support indie bookstores in your area. It's a great way to get the book as well. And uh, shout out to libraries. That's all. Yeah, for for real <laughs> public libraries. I um I don't, we also work with an indie book new books network. Also recently, kind of like got away from Amazon and and moved into some indie book publisher. And I wonder if it's the same one. I'm a bad host. I will find out. And from now on, I will follow your lead and shout out our independent booksellers. Um, So thank you so much again, everyone, for listening. Head out and pick up a copy of The Monopolis or let people that you think might be interested pick up a copy or, again, one for your library. And stay safe, mask up, and we will talk to you soon. Mm